0: Hi, welcome to the New Voting Project. My name is Kunal, your host, still your host. We should get a different host at some point. Um, (laughs) It could become redundant. Um, Today, we're here with Jackie Fielder, um, a former California State Senate candidate here in San Francisco Bay Area, um, the co-founder of the San Francisco Public Bank Coalition, an organizer at Daybreak PAC and an organizer at Stop the Money Pipeline um, an organization and coalition. Um, thank you so much, Jackie, for being here with us today. I understand you're probably super busy. So thank you. We do appreciate your time.
1: No, it's awesome to be on. I'm excited.
0: Of course, of course. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, so yeah, let's dive into these questions. Um, it's not going to be math, so don't worry. <laughs> I really don't like math. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, we'll talk about it. And um, just for our viewers, uh, talk a little bit about your background. Um, and touch about how, since I'm Gen Z, you know, aspiring to go into college, studying, whatever, you know, <laughs> talk about how college prepared you to kind of what you do today um, in politics.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Hello, everyone watching and listening. Um, I, a little bit about my background. I grew up in the suburbs of LA in Long Beach and um, knew from uh, early age that I wanted to get out of my town. and so I applied to a ton of schools but actually I didn't want to leave California. I love California. I love the weather. I wanted to be close to my family. and so I applied to a ton of California schools and I'll tell you a little bit about my my applying to college process. It brought up a lot of just imposter syndrome about my, even though I was a pretty, you know studious, person um it brought up a lot of self-doubt about where I could get accepted and what that meant if I didn't get accepted somewhere and looking back I would have been I would have thrived anywhere but I was really hung up about just how difficult the application process was um I had sought out all of the resources that I could you know, how to write an essay, what a good essay looks like, um, and just found it kind of difficult. And I had a dream to attend Stanford, but after completing the UC application process, I was just so full of self-doubt and knew that I didn't really put my best foot forward there. And ultimately, I was I was running up against a wall of not wanting to apply or put myself out there because the fear of rejection was so great. And I had a friend who knew that I was going to apply to Stanford and was like, why are not you going to apply? The worst that they can say is no, just do it. And so two days ahead of the deadline, the regular deadline, I just like, and I kind of, I kind of just said, you know what, I'm just going to be my authentic self. And if they don't want that, then I, and I got rejected on the right terms. And lo and behold, I ended up getting accepted. So that's eventually where I went. However, um, I think that uh, it also depends on like, family background. And for some people, it's, it's harder to leave home, it's harder to, you know, be in a environment that is prestigious or whatever, but no matter where you go, I think everyone, um, I think people find that their, their lifelong challenges really come to the surface in college. And it's hard to navigate that without of a, a community of support, without supportive administration, but all in all, I think that, um, what prepared me for my life path now in college was, just a lot of self-inquiry about what mattered to me. Does it matter to get straight A's? Um, does it matter that I'm on a predictable path? For example, I was doing pre-medical engineering um, for at least the first couple quarters of my freshman year and then decided, you know what? That's not where my passion is. I want to do, do education policy, actually. So I did a 180 and, and took a different track. But in the end, I was always deciding how to spend my time. And, you know, I would put friends, honestly, over academics. I would put community engagement and organizing over academics. And some people can manage both and all of the things. But I was not that kind of person. And that was okay with me. I ended up being a pretty average student coming out of my undergrad. But I also managed to... um, plan enough to get a master's in sociology, in addition to my undergrad in public policy. And so public policy was basically economics. And I was taught by the most conservative, I guess, one of the most conservative institutions for economics in the country, which was the Hoover Institution. And so I got to know how, really how people, for example, in Washington think when they make policies. And Of course, I didn't agree with a lot of it, but um, in any case, I think that it prepared me to understand the world from both economically and sociologically and to find my own voice and find my own um, values because ultimately I didn't choose a predictable path on medical profession or being a lawyer. I certainly studied for the LSAT ahead of the Donald Trump election in 2016, but ultimately ditched that path too. And and so um, since college have just kind of carved my own path. And I think that has informed a lot of my, um, a lot of my decisions now in life.
0: Cool. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I don't have a fear of rejection. I just have the fear of getting rejected. I don't know if that makes much sense. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still applying to Stanford. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for that. That's, that's, that's a good, that's good. I'm glad you went to Stanford and enjoyed it. Um, it's nice. Everybody likes Stanford. Um, but I guess moving more towards your political side, you know, kind of, I guess, touch upon what drew you to politics, activism, becoming a community advocate. Like you said, you took a 180, what, what made you take that full full change?
1: Yeah, I only got political um, probably in 2014. And up until that point, I hadn't really been paying attention to politics. Um, even in college, I didn't really pay that much attention to politics. I, was, I went in there thinking that I was gonna be in engineering and I was just so optimistic about being associated with this grand institution. Um, that had so many resources. and you know, growing up, I didn't have um, as many resources as my peers at Stanford. So it was just really um, overwhelming and exciting. But then, realizing that engineering wasn't really my path and public policy was gonna be my my major, I I just started to interrogate my own, Uh, really privileges and opportunities and how, you know, I got in here to Stanford, but the 900 other classmates in my school, in my public school didn't. And, you know, the, the experience of tracking into the gifted program really made me feel some type of way. And also it became apparent that my educational experience and my, the, the schools that I went to were just so racialized and so divided by class too. And so I just started to, to notice the patterns to become aware and conscious about them. And I had some pretty remarkable experiences in, um, these like alternative spring break trips that you can take as an undergrad and, um, other kind of like outside of the usual school year experiences that are educational, but also they tend to um, inform like, you know, lenses of justice. And I took one on education equity in the Bay area. So I got to travel to SFUSD and Oakland Unified and just saw how those stratified systems of educational opportunity really reflected my own and I, at that point, was pretty convinced that I was going to stay in education policy, maybe become a teacher, maybe a school admin, maybe a Ph.D., but when Black Lives Matter really popped off in 2013, 2014, I had then begun to think about just larger systems, like what's happening to a student before they even get to a classroom? Um, Obviously, mass incarceration, police brutality, police violence, all of that was just hitting really hard at that time. And so I started to look outside of schooling and, and into the larger systems of inequality. At that point, I had been tutoring um, a couple students in third and fourth grade and were falling behind in their schools um, who, who did come from family backgrounds that looked very much like mine and continue with that for the rest of my undergrad. But I also added on to that organizing like prisoners literacy project and getting books from students they no longer wanted and then dropping them off in San Francisco to be distributed to incarcerated people. Um, Also tacked on teaching at a youth detention facility and a adult kind of like satellite campus in high school um which were both both incredible experiences rewarding and obviously woke me up to just how um cruel our our systems of punishment are uh, especially for youth and um on top of all that did a summer internship on Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota um a few other really formative experiences, but they all boil down to um, race and and class. Um, so, so that's pretty much a summary about how I became politicized. And that's before 2016 and everything happened there.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, 2016 was a real call for me. I mean, what, I was like a seventh grader? Yeah, that's when I guess my entire generation woke up as soon as Donald Trump got elected. That's, that was our, you know, breaking point. Um, yeah. Now I'm here. So not much.
1: <laughs> We're happy to have you though. That's yeah. pretty, that's pretty wild for a seventh grade. I can't even imagine. I mean, I, at that point had already been, like I said, I was at that point studying for the LSAT and, yeah. you know, um, but I can't imagine growing up, with Trump, I don't even remember Obama getting elected. Like,
0: same, yeah, same actually. Yeah, when Obama was first elected, in two thousand eight, I was four. <laughs> yeah, it's a little hard for me to remember that. Um, although it was historic, you know, we 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 always have the footage. Um, yeah,
1: but your generation is just so, um, um, I feel like, forced into the realm of politics and. Inequity—it's—it's it's unignorable.
0: Yeah, we deal with the repercussions of every generation that came before us. Mm-hmm. It, their problems have compiled, and now there are problems. So yeah, you know, climate change included. Yep. But uh, yeah, that's—that's that's great to know. Um, kind of moving in your state senate campaign. You know, I was a supporter. You know, low key. Thank you. Okay. Um, just because your opponent was is very contentious on certain issues that affect me in where I live, right, in, in suburbs, especially on housing. Um, so I kind of wanted to have our viewers listen about your policy objectives when you were running um, and what you believed and why you stood up against a, you know, almost a, a behemoth of an opponent, of an opponent, right? He was, he was a big-time incumbent in the state.
1: <clears throat> yeah, so um, backing up a little bit, in 2016, Donald Trump got elected. I said, why would I study for law when the president of the United States just disregards it entirely? And so I decided to ditch the potential about being a lawyer. And I don't know, I, after college, college did provide some structure for me, but I, I have begun to suspect since then that I have like ADD and can't, really settled down on one project or one life path. And so I've kind of just been so many different places. So since then, I I really got involved with the No Decode Access Pipeline Movement, specifically on the divestment side of things, um, organizing and founding the, the San Francisco Public Bank Coalition that still continues, um, and really just reorienting my my relationship with my heritage, um, specifically my Lakota and Hidatsa heritage, growing up, I had a I had a Latino family, huge in LA, and that was what's familiar. But the other side, my father's side, was was less so, and so that really pushed me to travel outside of California, you know, the state I love so dearly, and and see my home territories and understanding what it's you know a taste of like reservation life. Um, So all of that informed kind of just like my, my, my philosophy of change, which is to follow the money. And in 2018, I organized against the, I organized with the Democratic Socialists of America, San Francisco chapter and the ACLU of Northern California against our San Francisco Police Officers Association who are trying to write their own policies regarding tasers. And we ended up defeating them handily. And in that same election and in that same year, we passed two really important measures that um, have tremendously helped San Franciscans. One is universal right to counsel for anyone facing eviction, the other one being a small tax on the wealthiest corporations to provide for supportive housing and homeless services. So in that year Senator Scott Wiener had decided to side with the police officers association right and to side with the big business interests that were opposed to this funding for homeless services and housing
0: right
1: cuz they paid so, for this campaign <laughs> yeah so um so that's kind of where he really registered in my book as Someone who is of just a different planet than a lot of San Franciscans. Fast forward to 2019, and we, our, our city had elected a Democratic Socialist Supervisor, the first one in like three decades, Supervisor Dean Preston, who represents um, the Hate, um, Fillmore, Japantown, District 5. And we also elected Chase Boudin, who is currently undergoing a recall for yeah. his progressive stances on criminal justice. Right. Um, so I just saw, I saw that Scott Weiner was running for reelection and going virtually un- unopposed. And I thought that that was completely un- unacceptable considering just the changing tide of our city. And also going back to 2018, how we sided with the police officers and the big business interests. So I was like, is anyone running? Well, if not, I mean, I guess I will just to, you know, and this is also following the wave of young, you know, people who look like America running corporate free. Right. So, so a lot more attention, I think, to corporate free candidates and was inspired by, you know, so many of those, you um, of those trailblazers to to do it
0: and were not that far off i'll tell you (laughs) that you know we here in the valley we thought you were gonna win (laughs) a lot of us were counting on you to win like i told uh, you know your your staff your campaign manager people you were hanging around that we think she's gonna win that would have really disrupted the system yeah holy it would have yeah
1: It would have. Um, So the district is gigantic. It's a million people. California's legislature is split into an assembly, which has 80 members, and a Senate, which has 40 state senators. And considering that California has more than 40 million people, each senator is representing more than a million people. So this district is all of San Francisco, Daly City, Coma, parts of South San Francisco. And running a campaign grassroots... Corporate free—that means you know, no money from corporations. Um, I took no money from police unions, obviously. And we—I was hoping for like twenty percent in the primary. We only had a hundred days between the time that we really got going until the primary in March twenty twenty, and we thought that the Bernie kind of revolution was going to bring about a lot of excitement and volunteers to us. But what actually happened was. It um, And this is not to to say that I I was aligned with Bernie, Um, but all of the volunteers that we normally would have had for the primary, they went to knock doors for Bernie, rightfully so. Um, So we actually ended up doing a lot with a little in that amount of time. And I was going to be happy with 20%. We ended up getting 33%, which is way more than anyone expected. And then, of course, like two weeks later, the pandemic hit and we all got shut down. And truth be told, we never had an office. We were always operating from the back of my van and other people's houses. (laughs) So it was extremely grassroots. And, you know, in the end, we got 42% of the vote or something like that. And I think that amounts to like 190,000 votes, which I think is hard for me to wrap my mind around, but I think it's something like five times or four times the SF Giants stadium. <laughs>
0: okay.
1: So um, in the end, we also raised $777,000. Holy crap. And my opponent raised something like 2 million. Yeah. And that that's with the help of corporations and real estate developers, all that.
0: From it, but individual contributors, 700,000?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's always uh, Did you take a few. No, there's always a few labor unions labor. and a few tribes that had supported because my opponent had actually, um, you know, been pushing for deregulation housing policy for a long time.
0: Still is actually. Yeah, <laughs>
1: and yeah. and um, when it came to sacred sites, one of his bills actually. Basically enabled the bulldozing of a sacred site in the East Bay, and so they were upset about that. And obviously, I'm also um, running for Indigenous rights and Indigenous wildfire task force. You know, more sovereignty for California tribes. And sorry, the original question was policies. Right. Um, basically, California Housing Emergency Fund, which was a hundred billion dollars over ten years. Everyone said that's crazy. Where are you going to get that money? And now we see Gavin Newsom is actually putting something like $6 billion a year towards yeah. housing, which is great, um, as well as single-payer health care so that you don't have to worry about what you're going to pay. For example, I just stubbed my toe and I think it's broken. I'm considering not going to the doctor because I don't want to pay out of pocket for expenses. And that's not the case with single-payer healthcare. Um, you can change jobs and not have to worry about your health insurance. So many other things it ultimately saves all of us money and universal right to counsel for anyone facing eviction, um, during the time during COVID, you know, canceling rent, canceling uh, mortgages potentially, and a green new deal for California. you know expanding our, our public infrastructure so that we don't have to rely on cars as much. Cause that's where a lot of our emissions come from 40% and increase funding for public schools. So many other things, basically making sure that the government can guarantee rights to education, housing, shelter, food, healthcare, all of that. And, you know, we saw real estate developers pouring a ton into my opponent's campaign and to independent expenditure committees, which are basically super PACs, um, You know, we actually got him to during the time of the George Floyd protests break away after like, you know, his 20 year career siding with police interests to reject police union money. Of course, that's all doable because he has so much from real estate and big tech. But um, but we got that in last summer.
0: Great. Yeah, no, like I said, we were rooting for, for you and um Run again, but we'll get to that at the end of the interview as well. <laughs> I got a question for that? Um, I guess going back to 2020, right? Like you said, once in a century pandemic, um, crazy political atmosphere. You know, local, state, and federal really. You know, culminated in some um, in some weird shit. I mean, I got no, nothing else to say about it. It's just some weird <laughs> shit. Um, what lessons would you say you learned from the 2020 election? yours included you know how did you process that
1: yeah um i mean i was sad for about 10 minutes and then you know you have to realize that this is a long game um it's not just one election where things happen you know there's so many legislators that had to run several times to get elected and even then i look at aoc and she's you know alongside the squad in the congress um (laughs) The people's champion, and her real power comes from being able to convey to the public and a lot of us, like, to voice what we're feeling, and to really validate us. Um, it's not that her power; it's not that she hasn't done anything. She's done a tremendous amount to move, you know, resources to her own district, and for so many people. Um, who have suffered from COVID and its economic impacts, but her real power comes from us. Her real power comes from, of course, being elected and having a platform, but it's not exactly in moving policy. It's not, you know, passing universal health care. It is like throwing a gigantic boulder at a at a tremendously stubborn and several hundred years, big, just <laughs> boulder of a government that is meant to protect predominantly wealthy people. And our Congress is full of million- millionaires. Our state legislature here in California is full of landlords. There's only like two to three renters. Um, so so our government is meant to protect a minority of people that, that hold a tremendous amount of resources. And she is um, she is like the one voice and, and along with her squad colleagues, they are the, the handful of voices that really speak to the rest of us, the majority of us. And so when I think about what lessons we learned in 2020 for my campaign, it's that, um, the goal isn't to exactly seize power for one position, one seat in, a governing body of 120 seats. Um, it's to build the, the confidence of the public. It's to build the confidence of the movement to be able to push for more, no matter who's in power. Um, it's, it's being able to um, ensure that everyone has a voice, really, and, and is empowered to, to use it. And so, in in that regard, we were successful, you know, s- making making the corporate status quo uh, get a run for their money. Certainly, um, and it's not over. It's never over. It it, it has been over for four hundred plus years, and it won't be over for another four hundred plus years. Um,
0: next four hundred.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Next
0: Twenty, honestly. I do
1: too. Yeah. I do too. And so there's that as well, and. Um, for me personally, like what a tremendous honor. It's one of, it's been one of the greatest honors of my life to represent the movement, the movement for everyone having what they need to live a, a productive, meaningful, um, expressive life and a life worth living. Tremendous honor. Um, And, you know, it, it could continue in, in the future with other people. I'm not the only one to carry that vision. Um, it is a movement. And I think we have to like, I like to look at nature. And uh, if you get a chance to read Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown, it's amazing. And, and basically the, the thesis is that nature holds so much, um, so much wisdom in being able to, survive and and evolve and i'm just one of a huge ecosystem even here in san francisco of people that want to see better from our electeds who want to see better for our neighbors and our family and so it's um, it's you know that was that endeavor in that season and that election and we have to continue to ask like where is power is it in electoral politics? Is it in mutual aid? Is it in, you know, legal defense? Is it in organizing? It's kind of all of the above. And that's also, so now I'm back in the climate space with Stop the Money Pipeline, um, holding holding the backers of fossil fuels accountable in the financial industry. And it's not a tactic. It's not, it's not a question of like, which tactic is better? I think they all serve their purpose and it's it's gotta be in all of the above. So there are so many people from our campaign, young organizers like yourself as well, that came into it for the electoral politics, stayed for the movement and have continued as organizers in other endeavors. Right. And that's been a tremendous honor as well to, to introduce people to all different manners of organizing and, and be engaged. And so I think that uh, what I learned was basically that it's an all of the above. And some, some moments call for different people to step up. Uh, I certainly feel like it was a sacrifice in some respect to do that. And am now like treating myself to, for example, friends, friends, hangouts, you know, safely, uh, when possible. And also like the simple things like cooking a meal for myself. Um, and recognizing that that was the role that I played last year, I played a different role this year, and, and the movement continues, and we'll see what happens in the future.
0: And you'll play a different role in about two years. <laughs> That's, uh, there. Um, and I guess, um, yeah, no, I would have to agree. I mean, being an organizer is fun, but there's a whole bunch of facets that are accomplishing, you know, policy objectives and mm-hmm. fighting injustice there's many different ways to, to go about solving these issues um, yeah. and the main issue i think the central issue of this channel is actually to talk about voting rights issues happening in the united states we look at georgia we look at texas you know these conservative states passing you know very yeah. peculiar but almost as a conservative reaction to the movement, right, the movement that you and I are fighting for. What are your thoughts on on restricting voting rights in in, in the current political climate, and how important is the right to vote, you would say?
1: Yeah, having just spent two months in Texas um, with my current partner who works in voting rights, I've just been, I've just been so heartbroken seeing how easy it is for for the notion of democracy and everyone having a voice be eroded by i mean really white men who have fairly stable lives and for some reason just have this concept of of americanness as being that as being white and propertied and anyone else really does not deserve the right to vote which is of course i'm i'm coming from california it's a completely different political landscape however i will say that i see similarities as crazy as it may seem in denying people the right to vote in these gop held states but also in california how how good is a right to vote when your options are between two millionaires for example two Status quo corporate politicians who will say the nice things during the election and then continue the status quo. Um, that's why in founding Rick Pack, I've been so really strict and insistent that any candidates endorsed by Dayrick Pack abide by a set of pledges. I'm not going to take money from corporations, to police unions, to fossil fuel industry, to um, you know organizations that oppose single-payer healthcare and I think that in our our world our system like outside of politics you vote with your money which is such a messed up way but I think that um, in any case I, I am heartbroken and there's a ton of organizing happening at the grassroots level in these various states and can also say, just speaking about my own partner too, there's a lot of burnout. I mean, it's just one thing after another, whether it's voting rights or, or environmental justice or immigration, it's kind of the same organizations having to deal with all of the fallout. And there's a ton of, there's a, a glut of people, I think across the country really achieving, not achieving, approaching burnout. Especially after the year that we've had, and so I'm concerned with the long term uh, stamina of the movement to be able to whether not just these, but you know, especially with the coming climate um, collapse, that that whole thing. Um, so I feel like in 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 these times, it is perhaps more important than we realize to take care of ourselves. And it sounds cliche, but I really would hate to see a world in which people give up. People just say, well, that's that. And we're just going to let everything, let the cards fall as they may. Which I think is, in a sense, a denial in itself. So I have tremendous respect for organizers in those states, and also they're not heroes. They're not people to be sacrificed. They they are approaching burnout, and um, beyond sending resources, I think training the next generation of really freedom fighters is crucial to sustaining the work. Right.
0: Yeah. No, I would agree. I mean, after 2020, I was like dead for like six months not even six months. I mean, I hopped on a campaign at the end of November, but I mean, I was still really mellow. I kept it, you know, calm because I had just lost like two city council elections, mm. supervisors race in my County in Alameda County, mm-hmm. uh-huh. but I had won some in neighboring cities, you know, you know, by extension, we were like, yay, good job. But then at the end of the day, my own city, my own district, was taken over um, by developers and stuff mm. this collusion. <sighs> yeah, so I was I was pretty I was tired, you know. But then I opt on a campaign for DJ yeah. And now I'm on a campaign for mayor, um, in Oakland. Um, oh wow! So there's there's some things that that we're cooking up. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, but just just to wrap things up, I know I had hinted at this at the beginning, um, are you, do you have any remaining political aspirations? Um, in other words, are you <laughs> going to run for state senate again? Um, yeah, that's the question.
1: I think that we'll have to see. I, uh,
0: there's no we'll have to see. Like, I, I <laughs> told my viewers, like, you're going to run? <laughs> because I told them, so you're going to run.
1: Oh my gosh, if you say so. But looking at, I mean, this year, I feel like only just the summer, I began to get my bearings again about, you know, my vision for my life and it changes so often. I feel really happy where I am at this moment in climate finance. I feel like it's such a niche thing, but um, we got to move the capital. And so, away from fossil fuels and into renewables and, and regenerative agriculture and so on. So my mind is in the climate crisis. That's where I am right now. And I'm, you know, at the very heart of it, an organizer. And I like to think that I'm strategic. So if running for state senate is strategic again, um, I will probably do it. If it's not, you know, I don't know. And
0: but I'm telling you, it's strategic. <laughs> you have to you have to take my word for it, you know.
1: I'll also say that okay. there are now term limits in the state legislature. So there's only, you know, you only, I mean, 12 years is a long time, but you only get so much to do whatever you want. And um in the state legislature, they're completely hostile because they're corporate Democrats and Republicans they're completely hostile to anything resembling a guarantee on education, healthcare you name it, because Sacramento is so beholden to corporate interests. So I would have to go into it really understanding that, again, kind of like we see at the national level, you're just one of so many, you're just one of 120 legislative reps. You have to be really strategic for what you want to do, Dude, do you want to go in there and blow it up and just be like da 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 and be just completely unwilling to compromise, which I'm not opposed to. Yeah. Or do you want to um play the long game and play nice and whatever. I find that really hard to wrap my my mind around the latter option. Um so that's kind of what Goes into my calculation, and right now we don't have a critical mass of legislators in Sacramento who are corporate free, who are willing to stick their neck out for these policies to call out the the legalized corruption in Sacramento. Um, so I'm kind of putting all my eggs in the basket of supporting other candidates at least for the immediate future with Daybreak Pack, um, but also, of course, that's still on the table for me and. You know if 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 that's what people want of course i'll listen yeah. um but at the end of the day i think it has to be strategic
0: good yeah no um running for state senate is the table like <laughs> it is the table anything you know books you know bookcase still <laughs> i don't know if you like light you can put it on the table okay. <laughs> that is that is the next step um and i guess last question um what would you recommend to my generation, Gen Z, you know, what's what's your advice to us as the next flight of voters, you know, next people who want to influence elections and policies or wanting to stay engaged. What would you tell us?
1: Um, I would tell Gen Z to just go for. Go big, like if you have a vision for something. Um, go big with it. There's nothing to lose, whether that's a applying in college, whether that's organizing your community or at the state level or at the national level, just go big because there will always be people that negotiate it down, that say we can't do it. But as we're seeing right now, the boldest solutions are coming from young people. And I look back at so many different movements in our country's history and even global history and revolutions have been started by young people, by students. And I only, um, I only caution about considering your well-being in the long term. And that's hard to, under, to really wrap your mind around as a young person. I get it. I've been there. Um, but there is a role to play for people who care about each other, for people who take care of each other. And I think that um, noticing when it's time to take a break, you know, if you're getting too negative in your um, kind of outlook or feeling powerless, maybe it's time to take a break. But I I am counting on you all to to really bring the big ideas and don't be afraid to remind politicians that you are future voters as well and you will remember
0: yeah no i'll make sure to tell every politician i know future voter <laughs> like you gotta listen to me <laughs> even if they're not in my district like i'm still a voter you know? <laughs> uh well yeah that's great thank you so much for coming on the show and, and just for the viewers how can people stay updated on what you do um if you want to shout out your socials i'll link them in the description
1: yeah yeah. uh i'm on twitter and instagram at jackie fielder underscore j-a-c-k-i-e field and then e-r underscore and you can follow at sf public bank you can follow at daybreak pack um but it's it's all online
0: yeah no um and is there anything you'd like to add before we get off
1: Thank you all so much. Anyone who supported anyone new to the movement, you're welcome to you're welcome.
0: you know no not, <laughs> not, not in that way. You're
1: welcome to reach out to David Pack to figure out how to how to get involved or um, public bank. you know we always need new fresh people and you are the future.
0: Yeah, no thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Do appreciate it. Thank awesome. you. You're doing. And we'll have you back on the show when you're a state senator.
1: <laughs> hopefully sooner
0: yeah may, probably sooner and uh, state senate would be great i'm just like you know you gotta do that like uh, if you don't i'm still gonna call you like you know like what, what are you doing <laughs> or supervisor i don't know whose district you live in in san francisco supervisor is great city council sure you know mayor mayor
1: oh my god
0: <laughs> yeah. I you. but uh, yeah thank you so much for coming on the show
1: Thank Um, you, Kunal. Thanks so much.
0: Of course. Peace out. Take care. Bye.